Hey, how are you guys? Whatever. I'm, good. I'm just glad to see everybody. I'm gl- so glad it's spring. It's bursting within me. I'm Casey Tigard. I'm the spiritual formation pastor here at Parkview, and I am glad to see all of you this morning. And We've been talking about some interesting questions for the last three or four weeks, and if you're interested in getting some of those questions you saw in the promo, we do have all those sermons available online on our website, parkviewchurch.com. You can watch all of those messages, some really great questions. And for me this morning, this question that I get to deal with is one of the tougher ones. How can you believe in a Bible that science overwhelmingly disproves? And I know this is an important question because I know there are different types of folks in the room right now. In the room right now, there are scientifically minded people who are saying, what can you possibly tell me that's going to change my mind? Science has given me all I need to know and all I will ever need to know. I'm not changing my mind on that. I got all the evidence I need. And on the other hand, there are Christians in the room who have family members or friends or people they work with who are coming at them with these scientific pieces of evidence. And they're like, how do I talk to that person that I work with? How do I talk to that person in my family who doesn't believe in God because of what science has told them? And also in this room, we have Christian scientists, not like Tom Cruise, Christian scientists, but we're talking about people who are a Christian and have these strong, deep beliefs in God and at the same time are operating in the world of science and saying, I get this, I hear that there's this conflict going on. How do I make these two halves work together? I've been wrestling with this for the last few months. I've been reading, praying, hoping that I can come through with something that's going to help us all, no matter what side of the argument we're on. And there's a lot of questions at stake. But I've got to admit to you the first thing. I'm not a scientist. I don't even play one on TV. Even if I slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night, I would not be able to be a scientist today. I have a, I'm working on a doctoral project right now where I have a lot of data and a lot of experimentation I'm doing, and honestly, it sort of makes me want to claw my eyes out. Um, it's not something that comes naturally to my brain. And uh, honestly, the reason why is because I have a different way of seeing the world. To me, the way the world should work and operate looks something like this. Take a look. Oh, that is so good. It has nothing to do with this sermon. I just wanted to show it. Uh, I've been waiting since the Super Bowl to show that. No, actually, it does have something to do with the world, because tell me, how many of you, when you saw that movie, walked around the house, and when no one else was looking, went, just to see if you could use the force? I still do that. If I go to Walmart or Target, and they have the automatic doors, I'll just go. And then when the door opens, it's like, ah, the force works. There's something about that, this feeling that there's something bigger, there's something eternal, there's something that's beyond description in the world that, that, that we resonate with, that we identify with, and it, it hits something, a chord deep within us. It, it, it speaks to us about something beyond what we can see or taste or touch or define. It, it talks to us about God. It talks to us about the eternal, something beyond what we can understand. I want to start answering this question, how can you believe in a Bible that science overwhelmingly disproves? I want to start from the perspective of talking about God, which shouldn't surprise you because it's church. So I want to start with God because I think that's the best place to begin. And let me make the statement of what I believe on this thing. First of all, I believe that God created all things according to their kinds. I don't believe that species evolved into other species. And I think there's good science outside of Christianity that actually agrees with that as well. I believe that God designed people with a purpose and a function, and I believe he designed creation to function 
properly, and I believe that's the real focus of Genesis chapter 1. That's where I am, and I'm willing to debate some of those issues, and I'm willing to tell you why that is through the course of this sermon. But I think where we need to begin is to be fair. We've got to start talking a little bit about science and some of the good things that have happened. The sciences have told us a lot about how the world works and how the world functions, and that's a good thing to know. It's testing the whys out, the hows out about how things are going. First of all, did you know that an average hardworking person can sweat four gallons a day? Four gallons a day. You know, a half a pint of that comes from your feet. Now look at your neighbor's feet. Right now, they're working on a half pint. Now try not to throw up. So I'm just wondering who the guy, who's the scientist that actually had to measure that? Is there paper, rock, scissors going on in the lab going, okay, you get to hold the container this time. Ready? One, two. That's not the best science. But if you've talked in a cell phone in the last 24 hours, it's because someone experimented with information traveling over sound waves. If you took medication today or yesterday, it's because cells and antibodies were experimented with until the right reaction, the right concoction produced the right reaction so that your diabetes is under control or your blood pressure is managed, or your mind is calmed. Science has done a lot to help the quality of life of people. At Parkview, we believe in praying for people. When they're going in for surgery or going in for medical tests, we believe that people should come. James chapter 5 says, come, bring people, anoint them, and pray for them. But I've never once, after that prayer, gone, you know, I think that did it. So just don't even worry about the surgery, don't worry about the test, I think we got everything taken care of right now. Because I believe that medical science a lot of times is a method that God uses to heal people. It's a method that God uses to take care and, and, and give hope to and give strength to people. And I believe that because I believe God is the source of good scientific thinking. Listen to Psalm 139, it says, For you created me in my inmost, my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You created me like this. So scientists, I want to talk to you for a second. I don't want you to stop thinking the way you do. If you're a scientifically minded person, I don't want you to stop doing that because God made your brain. God made your brain to function the way that it functions. Dr. Ben Carson, one of the most respected pediatric neuroscientists and surgeons in all of history, said this. God has given us more than 14 billion cells and connections in our brain. Why would God give us such a complex organ system unless he expects us to use it? It's God that created the brains of scientists to search out evidence and facts and proofs, and I think that's a good thing. But the question could be, why did God create a brain that could lead people away from him? Well, it's not brand new. Look at Matthew chapter 28. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him after they, they worshipped him, but some doubted him. You've got to understand, this is after Jesus has been brutally crucified, after he's been placed in a tomb, a stone rolled in front of it, and now has risen from the dead and has reappeared to the disciples. He's standing there in the flesh, and there are disciples going, yeah, I'm not so sure. I, I need something else. I need a little more proof. I mean, you rising from the dead and standing in front of me is just not quite enough. So doubt has always been there, even from the beginning. And sadly, the church has not done well with doubters. We've not been the most doubt-accepting kind of place. And so I want to apologize. I have a friend who's a scientist who once another Christian found out that he was a scientist, said, oh, you're one of those who's too smart for God. And I thought, that's not how we should be approaching this. God gave people the brains to think this stuff through, and it produces doubts. 
it's just the way it is. So I want to apologize to you. If you've got a scientific mind here today and someone has come down on you for doubting, we tried Galileo way back when because he said that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. So I want to apologize to you. Scientists, with your doubts, with your questions, welcome. You're welcome here. This is a place for you to bring your doubts. Sure. But that doesn't answer the question. How do we talk about the Bible and science together? It's a hard thing to do, and I knew that you'd need more of an expert than me because, as I said, not a scientist. So I thought I'd bring in somebody who has had a lot of influence on us. He's actually had a lot of influence on Pastor Tim's position on creation and science and the Bible together. His name's DJ Moran. He's a uh, Ph.D.-trained psychologist, and he's also on the show Hoarders. I just want to put that plug in there for him. So if you watch the show on A&E Hoarders, he's one of the psychologists that works with people there. So I want to bring you into the discussion he and I have been having for the last couple months. So check it out. Hey everybody, I'm here with my friend DJ Moran, and we've been talking about this Bible and science issue for a couple months now, and I wanted his opinion and his perspective on these things because he's PhD trained in evidence-based science. If you, if, you had to, if you had to say, do you think Christians do good science? You're asking an interesting question because I was recently in Kuwait with a bunch of scientists, and um, someone was trying to bring up the conversation, and... Uh, of, of, of the same one we're having right now, and a very devout Christian uh, at the dinner table said, you know, "I just I just keep them separate. I mean, they're just two separate things. I don't use science to prove God's existence or not. I use science in order to create a better world and in order to reduce human suffering, which is pretty neat because I think that's what you know a lot of folks in the Bible are telling human beings to do is go out and and do good works. James said that, you know, mm. faith." and works. You know what the scientists are doing? They're figuring out the best way to work to reduce human suffering. Because 150 years ago, what we knew to be science has been disproven. I wouldn't say necessarily disproven. It's not as workable anymore with the new technology. But that doesn't render modern science wrong. You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, yes, at some point, the science might have its flaws. Right now, we've got the best of the evidence that we have. That's what we have. That's what we're going to use. And it's hard to refute that. In 150 years from now, it might be refutable, but there'll be better evidence then. So, you know, I sometimes hear a lot of folks saying, well, you know, science ends up being wrong after a century. Well, it was right then because it was the best of the evidence. This is my argument against folks who have a problem with evolution. You know, maybe God's finger touched the universe in such a way, and that was the trajectory it had to take. You know, maybe... That's just the way the trajectory had to go. Why, mm. why can't they both coexist? Yeah. I'm not saying that they do. I'm saying why can't a supernatural being have started evolution? Yeah. I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Yeah. What I'm saying is why would someone have to argue against that? Yeah. So DJ, a Christian, offers a very interesting question. Why should there be a battle between evolution and God, why should that not be a thing that can live together? And, and there's a reason for that. And it's the key to the question that we're asking in the sermon. How can you believe in a Bible that science has proven overwhelmingly is not true? The first thing we have to look at is the Bible itself. We've got to come to conclusions about the Bible to help us get through this discussion and helps it to stop being such a heated debate. And the first thing we need to come to terms with is this, is that the Bible is not a science book. It was never intended to be a science book. It was never intended to explain all of the details about modern science. Here's an example. 
Have you ever been driving someplace and you see the sign for the town that you're coming up to? Or if it's a town that you've never been to, you simply see the name and you know where you're going. But you don't know all there is to know about that place. All you see is the sign and how far away it is. For example, my wife and I went to the Cayman Islands last summer. And we found out through our, uh, our research about the place that there was a city on the island called Hell. And honestly, we just had to go there, right? So if there's a place called Hell that's on an island, I want to know what that's all about. So Hell Cayman Islands was the place that we took off for. So we started walking, and if you've ever walked in the Caribbean in August, in the middle of the day, it's hot. It's really hot. And so we walked about, and we kept seeing signs that said, Hell, two miles. Hell, one mile. We're like, yeah, that's where we're going. And uh, how do you go to the island and not go to Hell? So we kept going and kept going. We finally got there, and this is what it looked like. So I'm just drenched in sweat. You know, it seems all very appropriate. It's just so humid and so hot. That place is called the Devil's Hangout. It's a gift shop. You could buy a t-shirt that says I went to hell and back, which is kind of cool. You could send yourself a postcard from hell. It's kind of an interesting thing. But on the back of this building, painted in huge letters, in huge white letters, it says, Jesus is Lord, repent and be saved. Now who would have thought you'd find that there? You're in hell, and here's the gospel message painted on the back of the wall. From the sign that said, hell two miles, hell one mile, I could have never believed that that's something that you would have found there. And it's the same thing with the Bible. The Bible is a sign. The Bible is a sign pointing to one particular thing. It's a sign pointing to God. The whole point of the Bible is to point people to God's kingdom, God's salvation, God's character, God's identity. It's not there to explain all the details of it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture, the story, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The point of the Bible is to give us the insight into life and give us the insight into God that we actually need to live every day. It's telling us about his kingdom. It's telling us about his plan, about his salvation. So when we read some of the scientifically tough parts of the Bible, we have to understand that the people who were recording this and experiencing it, they didn't have our same scientific technology. And God didn't really see a reason to upgrade their scientific knowledge. So let me give you an example of that. Genesis 1-6 says, And God said, Let there be expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. Are you confused? Yes. So when he talks about expanse, he's talking about land. So there's land in between waters. But the Bible passage here also says there is an expanse above the waters with water above it. So if you read that literally, it's saying earth, water, earth, water. Now you take modern science and look at that. They go, there's no land up there. There's no, I mean, all of you who are claustrophobic in the room are going, oh heavens, there's land up there. There's no land above our heads. But they had to have some way to explain things like rain. Why doesn't, it, why doesn't that water fall all the time? If there's water up there and occasionally it falls down in the form of rain, something's got to hold it back. And if God lives up there, he's got to have something to walk around on. So it wasn't that they were being scientific. It was they were trying to explain the world as they saw it. They were trying to explain God's world in the best way that they possibly could with the tools they had available to them. And God let them do that. So does that make the Bible untrue when science says, we all know that that didn't happen? No. 
but it points to one very, very specific thing. It points to the fact that the Bible is more about the who than it is about the how. And no, I don't mean Pete Townsend and Roger Daughtery. I mean, it's more important to know who the source of it is than the how it came about. That's what the Bible's all about, is that it's teaching us about the who and not the how. So what do we do with Genesis scientifically? How do we work through it? There are a lot of arguments that come up because of the book of Genesis. First of all, there's a fossil record. They're recovering fossils that would tell us that the world is billions of years old. And yet if you take the Bible literally and say it was literally six days and God created the world, that means the world is only like eight to 12,000 years old. The earth is only eight to 12,000 years old. So how do you reconcile that? Could it be that God created stuff before what we find in Genesis 1 and that makes it that much older? How can there be any days in creation when the sun and moon don't get created until the fourth day? How do you have a day when there's no sun or moon? Maybe it's that it's not trying to give us a literal order of how it all happened. What about the dinosaurs? Where are they in this whole thing? Could it be that they existed before the account in Genesis chapter 1? And finally, what about people evolving from apes? Could it be, and I don't believe this, but is it possible that this could have taken place before all the stuff we find at the beginning of the Bible? I don't know. But what I do know is that scientists don't know either. Listen to 1995, the National Association of Biology Teachers issued this statement. And these are, your, these are the people who are teaching. So if you have kids in school, listen to this. They issued a statement on the teaching of evolution. It said, evolutionary theory, indeed all of science, is necessarily silent on religion and it neither refutes nor supports the existence of deities. What it's saying is, evolution does not necessarily say there isn't a God. It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say anything to that. Biochemist Klaus Dose said this, that more than 30 years of experimentation on the origin of life in the fields of chemical and molecular evolution have led to a better perception of the immensity of the problem of the origin of life on earth rather than to its solutions. What he's basically saying, if I can translate, is the more science we do, the less answers we have. And so if the Bible is not a science book, if it's a book about God, it's a, if it's a book more about the who than about the how, then there's a lot of room to do science. And science will continue to wrestle with the how, and I think it's a good thing. But ultimately, it doesn't change what we can believe about God and or the Bible. But there are places where they overlap. Leviticus chapter 26.3 says this, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. This is just good science, right? Rain falls, stuff grows, we eat the fruit, we're all good. So that's just really simple biology. But ultimately, you go back to that passage. The point of it is not that plants grow and they have stuff to eat. The point of it is, is that God is the one giving the rain. It's not about the how. It's about the who. And now we know how all of those things happen. We know how rain comes. And most of the time, we can predict it, although it depends on who you trust. We know where babies come from. Mood lighting, Barry White, a box of wine. We know how these things happen now. We know where all those things come from. We know now how to explain the how, but we've got to come back to the who. So what does this lead us? Do Christians just push science to the side and say, I believe in God and that's it? I don't think so. But if the Bible is just about God and not about how all of it happened, we don't have to use bad science anymore to try and prove the Bible true. And Christians are really guilty of using awful science to try to prove that the Bible is genuine. Look, if God doesn't need to be proven by science, then let's stop using bad science to try and do it. 
Because it just doesn't make things look very good. And it doesn't look like we're thinking that through. So don't grab the latest science and try to nail that person that you know disagrees with you because of a scientific viewpoint. Because this leads us naturally into our next point. If the Bible is not a science book, what is it? Well, the Bible is a book of faith. And for that, I need to go back to my friend DJ. Well, aren't scientists, though... In, in the process of science, and this, even in the scientific method, there's interpretation going on there, too, of data and results. How, does, how do those two things get waged against each other? Right. That's a good question. Every scientific endeavor has to have assumptions. You have to have assumptions. And what are the assumptions that they're going to have ahead of time? Most scientists are going to assume that they're going to get the best work done in science by assuming that they're going to only have what can be governed as part of their investigation. That's why there's this push against, for many scientists, push against the supernatural. We can't govern that, so we're not going to include it in our analysis. Hmm. So where's the line? Where's the line between natural and supernatural? Something I've always been curious about. Right. If a scientist is going to make the assumption that his or her investigation is going to be a natural science, then the subject matter has to be testable, it has to be measurable, it has to be countable, um, it has to be uh, able to be observed, um, perhaps observed by the senses or observed with some kind of apparatus. And the neat thing is that what we used to think was governed by supernatural forces, as technology progressed, microscopes, x-rays, as technology progresses over time, we're able to explain things naturally through accountability, through empirical measures. What we used to explain with spirits, ghosts, goblins, and the supernatural. So the idea here is that as science starts to push towards the boundaries, we're going to be able to explain more and more naturally, measurably. But I don't think that that has to preclude folks who believe in the supernatural or believe in uh, spirituality. It shouldn't preclude their faith. Faith is about the untestable. As soon as people start to try to prove the existence of God, look out. Because if you do it and you can say, oh, look, I've measured God. I've come into contact with it. It's either the second coming or you're dead. You know? <laughs> so as soon as you start to be able to measure it, I, I, I don't think it's, it's faith anymore. Yeah, yeah. This is a really difficult job. You should pity me. I can believe in a Bible, despite what science says, because as DJ said, it's about faith. And faith is about the untestable. If, in fact, there is a God that is behind the Bible, then he's going to be a God that we can't grab a hold of. He's going to be a God that we can't harness, that we can't experiment with, we can't contain enough to understand everything there is about him. And the Bible echoes that, too. Look at Psalm 92, 4. It says, "...for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord." I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound are your thoughts. God, speaking to the people through Isaiah, said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We aren't even capable of thinking about God in a way that we can completely understand Him without faith. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. Red vel any Red Velvet fans, that's good stuff. Whew. So science is trying to make sense of the world that we can see. 
and that we can taste and we can touch, kind of like this cake. But there's a part that's beyond that. There's something out there that's beyond what we can taste or see or touch or feel or measure. There is something eternal, something indescribable. And we believe in that. And the Bible is a book of faith. And faith is described this way in Hebrews 11. It says, faith is confidence in what we hope for. An assurance of what we don't see, what we can't measure. If God is not testable, if he's not susceptible to experiment, and if that's what the Bible is all about, then science can't disprove the Bible because they're talking about two different things. Jesus even knew this. After he rises from the dead, and I know some people have a question about that, but I believe it. After Jesus rises from the dead again, he appears to his disciples. And there's one particular disciple, his name is Thomas. And I'm not saying that all scientists are Thomas. Trust me, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is Thomas needed more. Sorry, my mom told me not to do this. Thomas needed to see proof. And so he said, I won't believe until I can stick my fingers in the holes where the nails went in Jesus' hands. So when Jesus appears to his disciples again, he shows up to Thomas and he holds him his hand and he said, go ahead. I know that's what you need. Put your finger in the hole and believe. And Thomas does. And he says, my Lord and my God. And what Jesus says after that is so incredibly important. He says this in John. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have seen and who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's not saying that if you need proof that you are not going to be blessed. But what it is saying is that when you're at that place of believing without seeing the evidence, you're in a place where you can encounter God. You're in a place where you are able to experience something that's irrational and illogical and it's not able to be tested or captured or measured. You're in a place where you can understand the supernatural. You can understand the force. You can understand something bigger than just what's out there. And, and you know, we all have, we have evidence, we have graveyards full of people who have never risen from the dead, right? As far as I know, the mortality rate is still 100%. Everybody in this room is going to die. This is the peppy part of the message. Everybody is going to die. But when we see Jesus and he, and he jumps out of the grave on Easter, there's something in us that makes us want to believe that that's true. That there's somebody who finally beat it, who finally beat the mortality rate, who finally jumped into that other place where there was something more than just what we can test or what we can see or experiment with. So how does science and the Bible, given all of that, work together? Well, you're probably wondering about the cake at this point. And no, I wasn't just hungry. Because this cake is really the picture of what it looks like for science and the Bible to come together. You see the bottom layer. The bottom layer down here is the layer of the natural world. It's the layer of stuff that we can measure and test and experiment with. The stuff that we can get facts and evidences about. And without this bottom layer, the cake falls over. So we need the bottom layer. And I just tasted the bottom layer and it's pretty good. But that's not it. Because there's this second layer. There's this layer with all the icing on top of it. There's this layer that holds the candles. It holds the decorations. There's this layer that has something more to it than what we can just touch or taste or feel or experiment with. And the Bible talks about God and creation in those terms. He talks about it in second layer cake terms. It talks about it in Isaiah 45. It says, I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and commanded all their host." Amos 4.13, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name. 
Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I love this. All things were created through him and for him. Revelation 4 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God created everything and put them here for us to test and see and touch and measure and taste, but that wasn't all of it. The natural world we get to experiment with, we get to touch and taste, but you know what? I believe in the Bible because it talks about the second layer of the cake. I believe in the Bible because it talks about beauty and goodness and hope, even though those things have been marred by evil and anger and death. It reminds me that there's something like eternity. There's resurrection. There's reconciliation. There's forgiveness. There's hope. There's something operating in the world that's beyond what we can see, and it comes from the hand of the Maker Himself. It reminds us that God not only created the world, but He loved it, and He loved it so much that He sent His Son to die for it, so that no one would ever have to die ever again. That we can have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Isn't that beautiful? My daughter, the bee, has been, um, has been scaring her mom and I to death lately. Um, she's three, so it shouldn't be surprising. She has figured out how to work her doorknob from the inside. And so, you know, you get used to how many footsteps there should be in your house at any one time, especially in the middle of the night. But then all of a sudden when you hear a the little fat feet on the hardwood floors. It's a little unnerving at first. And so she's finally figured out how to get up out of bed and go to the bathroom by herself. And that's awesome. Trust me, I don't, I don't not like that. But all of a sudden, one night, we heard the latch undo and we heard little fat feet on the hardwood floors. And my wife got up. I didn't, which was fine with me. And so she went out and she went through the kitchen. And as she was going through the kitchen, she met our daughter coming back the other way. And she was sprinting full speed back towards our room. And she said, Mama, Mama, look. Now, I'm not making fun of her. That's actually how she talks. She hadn't quite gotten that L sound down yet. She said, Mama, Mama, look. And she runs into the living room and throws herself on the couch, props her elbows up on the back of the couch and puts her chin in her hands and looks out the window. And the sun is just beginning to come up over the horizon. And it's that orangish, pinkish color that you just can't really describe. And she goes, Mama, look. It's gorgeous. Now, I know what happened there. I know that because of the Earth's axis and the force of gravity, the world finally began, the globe began to turn so that we came in full sight of the sun. And I know that the combination of the colors in the sky are what created that magical color. But when my daughter said, look, Mama, it's gorgeous, she was tapping into that second layer cake. She was tapping into something that's beyond description, that's beyond science, that's beyond evidences, that's beyond proofs. She was tapping into the force. She was tapping into the eternal, to the divine, to the God layer of the cake. And I love that. She was reminding us that there's more to it than just what we can see or prove. Look, here's the deal. The cake just doesn't taste as good without that second layer. Christians, we've got to do better science. We've got to be committed to being more thorough and more thoughtful. And it's okay because the Bible says if you come back to the right who, it doesn't matter what kind of how you come up with. We've got to do better science. Scientific folks... I want to encourage you to start thinking about the second layer of the cake. 
I'm not saying that you don't have that kind of stuff that happens. I'm just saying that you've got to realize there's going to come a point at which you can't prove anything else. There's something more that's going to be there that can't be evidenced or described or experimented with. You're going to start thinking about the second layer of that cake. One of DJ's biggest questions before he became a Christian, and he asked this question to Tim, he said, if I become a Christian, do I have to believe in a literal six-day creation? And Tim said, no, no. And I would say the same thing to you. It doesn't matter if you do believe in it or if you don't believe in it, but as long as you believe in the God and the God that Jesus loved and knew and you're willing to put your life in his hands, it doesn't matter whether you believe in six days of creation or not, that's all you need because you have finally gotten to the who. You have grabbed the second layer of that cake. So my biggest question to you this morning is, are you ready for a piece of cake? Look, I know, I know that there are, there are questions still out there on the table about this whole discussion. And I didn't, I didn't hit all of them. But honestly, 30 minutes is not enough time to hit all of them. But with this discussion, I'm always brought back to this, this portion of the beginning of the story in the Bible of, in Genesis. Where God says, let there be light. And light comes into the world. And it's this amazing thing. But I'm drawn to it because... Because of what we're about to experience in communion. So as, as the servers are getting ready, I want to put this thought in your head. John, in his gospel, says this. He says this about Jesus. He said that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was the life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And just like God did in the very beginning and brought light into the world, light to guide us on our paths, light to show us what's really going on in the world. And the second time he sent Jesus into the world to put the light onto our sin, to put light onto the places where we struggle, to put light on the areas where we need hope, where we need restoration, reconciliation, resurrection. He put the light into the world to show us those things. And the scripture says that darkness didn't like that. And we've all walked around in that darkness in one time or in our lives or another. And maybe we're walking around in it right now. And God is casting light into that. And the darkness is so thick that it actually takes a man like Jesus dying on the cross in a brutal way and being raised from the dead to show us the true light that brings life into the world. So as we take this time and as we celebrate communion together, let that thought sink into your mind that the second time God spoke light into the world, it was in the person of Jesus. And he said to us, here is the world as, as it should be. If you follow me, I'll give you the life that you've been looking for. I'll give you the life that you've always wanted. I'll give you the life that you've always needed and make you into the person I want you to be. Let's pray together. God, as we prepare our hearts to take the body and the blood of your Son. We know that it's the light that you sent into the world to reveal to us what was actually happening, what was actually going on. 
And right now I pray that we would be open to hearing the things that you want to say to us. Shine the light into our lives. Show us where we need to change, where we need to be more like you. And let us remember, not guilt so much, but light and hope that when you created all things, you brought hope into the world so that we might have it and live in it and through it. That's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.